sometimes we don't think about it. But when a perfect, holy God promises to never leave us and to never forsake us, that is a promise that we will almost indefinitely never fully understand how great it really is. And then to look back over the course of my life and to be totally aware of how much I've struggled. But in all of my struggle, he has never forsaken me. How much I have sinned. And in all of my sin, he has never forsaken me. In all of my foolishness, he has never forsaken me. In all of my doubting, he has never forsaken me. In all of my unfaithfulness, he has never, ever forsaken me. He has never thought about forsaking me. And he has never left you. From the day that you put your faith in Jesus, you have never walked alone, even though you may have thought it. And I know that the enemy does everything in his power to convince you that Christ's love for you is conditional, but it is not. Every price that needed to be paid, Jesus paid it on the cross. He died so that you don't have to. He understands the struggles and the sins and the weaknesses and the foolishness and the things that we go through, the trauma, the sickness. But in all of our life, no matter where we go or what lines we crossed, our King never, ever, ever forsakes us, which means every day that we live, there is hope in this life. And so if you're in this room this morning or you're at home, and maybe you didn't come to church today because of the decisions that you made last night and you felt like the last thing God wanted to do was see you this morning. I'm telling you right here, he suffered and he died so that he could be with you every single day of your life and for all of eternity. Amen. Our Jesus never leaves us and he never forsakes us. And for that reason, we can move on every day, no matter what we did or thought or said because our King is with us and he walks with us. And there's some days, man, I need that. I need to know that I can't out-struggle, out-sin, out-foolish, that I can't cost myself my relationship with Jesus because if I could, I would. Can I get an amen? And so I just want to celebrate that reality of our King this morning, that he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, that he is faithful. And for that alone, he's worthy to be worshiped, not just stood here and stared at while other people are worshiping, but he's worthy for you to worship. This isn't just music. This is worship of the God who created and saved you. He's worthy of it. Amen. He's worthy of it because he looks into the depths of your heart Everybody else sees the mask that you're wearing and they love the mask. They love the fake you, but he looks beyond the mask and he sees the real you. He sees the darkness, he sees the sickness, he sees the hurt, he sees the pain, he sees the sin, he sees the struggle and he loves you anyway. He's worthy to be worshiped for that fact alone, amen. amen. Come on, let's worship him this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I just come before you, Lord. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for you this morning. Jesus, I'm thankful that you thought we were worth saving. I'm thankful that you love us before we even knew you. I'm thankful that you're faithful to us even though we're not faithful back. I'm thankful, Lord, that you keep your promises. I'm thankful, Lord, that your spirit in us pulls us forward even when our flesh tries to take us back. I love you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would just clear our hearts, clear our minds. Father, that we can hear your word. 
I pray, Father, that, that we would come to know you, God, this morning in a deeper way. That this message this morning would create a hunger and a humility in us that we would come after you with all of our heart, God. I thank you, Lord, for your word, for your truth, for your presence, for your power. I thank you, Lord, for everything you are and everything you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning, that your will would be done. In your holy, holy, holy name, amen. Oh, God is good to us. This morning, um, I feel confident in saying the thing that I'm about to say. I think for every human that has ever lived, the most powerful message that you could ever hear and believe is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know that within the gospel there is a power to save, there is genuine power in it. And I think that there is no greater message in the world and all of scripture than the simple gospel message itself. And that is just simply this, that God loved us so deeply that instead of giving us what our sins deserve, which is eternal separation from him, that he loved us so deeply that he laid down the life of his only begotten son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins, so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could know him, that we could stand in his presence, that he could fill us with his spirit, that he could make us sons and daughters. And that price that was paid was paid by Jesus and everything that needed to be done in order for us to know our creator and be with our creator now and forever, all of it was accomplished in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel, and I believe it is the most powerful message, that he loves you so much that instead of destroying us as our sins deserved, he took the life of his own son to pay that price, and that blood that was spilt cleansed us from our sins, made it available for us to be filled with his spirit and that we would know him forever. I'm confident that that is the greatest message in the universe. That's something we could clap for that. I think for a believer who has already put their faith in Jesus, the message we're going to look at today, the reality of what we're going to look at today in Scripture, second only to the gospel, I believe is the most powerful message that a believer could hear. I realized when I was younger... Um, I realized that I did not know who I was. I think that this is something that has become very, very, very popular, especially in the last few generations. Sometimes it's called finding yourself. You ever heard of that? I'm gonna go find myself. Usually it's young people who don't wanna work or go to school, and so they get in a van and they go live down by the river to find themselves. That's not what I'm talking about. One of the scriptures that, that I became enamored with when I first started walking with Christ, it was, it, was, it was one of my most favorite scriptures and I studied it all the time and I thought about it all the time and to this day it still amazes me. And it's the scripture uh, in Psalms that David writes where he, he talks about the reality that God formed us in our mother's wombs that the hand of God literally wrote the code of our life. He designed us. We were intentionally designed the way that we are, that he formed us. He took thought in us. It took science a long time to catch up to the reality that we were literally designed, written. The, 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 the DNA that we have, we discovered, is a literal written code. It's a written language that was put together. It's the 911,000 reason that atheists are the stupidest people on the earth. No offense. Right. And if you're an atheist, I meant what I said. I also meant no offense. <laughs> and I said no offense, so you can't be offended. 
And, I, and, and, and what that thought led me to was that, that God was so intentional with my design. He was so intentional with who we are and what we look like and what we feel like and what we're good at. And, and I was just enamored with that idea of intentionality and that idea of design and that idea of purpose. And I loved it. But I realized really quickly that I did not know who I truly was. Apart from Christ, I did not know who I was. And, and I, I wanna start this morning with just a, a simple truth. And I'm gonna show it to you in scripture. And then I want us to see what Jesus gives us about this truth and about this reality. This truth, and if, if there's one thing that I think that you need to know, if you don't already know this, and when you hear it, and we go through the message today, it's gonna feel like you've always known it, even if you haven't. That's the power of wisdom and truth. It just fits like a puzzle piece. It's not confusing. It usually just goes, oh man, yeah. It just fits because it's truth, it's reality. This is the truth, that every single person who has ever been born on this earth does not know who they were truly born to be. No one, no one. If you go through scripture and you look from Genesis to Revelations, you will see this played out over and over and over and over again. If you go look at the beginning of Israel, you look at Abram, Abram did not know that he was Abraham. Abram, the wealthy businessman, did not know that he was Abraham, the father of many nations. Not until he met God, knew God, trusted God, and this uh, was revealed to him in his relationship to God and by God. If you go and, and you look at David, the shepherd boy, he did not know that he was designed and created with intentionality to be David the king to rule over God's people, not until he met God, knew God, trusted God, and God revealed this to him in their relationship. If you go look at Ezekiel, the shepherd, he did not know that he was Ezekiel, the prophet whom God would raise up to try and attempt to lead an entire nation back to God. Ezekiel, the shepherd, did not know that he was Ezekiel, the prophet, not until he knew God and God revealed it to them in their relationship. Elisha, who was a wealthy farmer, we know he was wealthy because he had a whole bunch of oxen. And oxen were the most valuable thing in the culture of the day, and he had a whole bunch of them. And he had his own life already prepared. He had his own career already chosen. He had his own direction already made out, and he was in the middle of living it. And he did not know until God revealed it to him that he was actually not Elisha, the ox owner farmer, but that he was Elisha, the prophet, who would do more powerful miracles than any other prophet in the Old Testament. If you move to the New Testament and you look at Simon, the fisherman, did not know that he was Peter, the preacher. Simon was a fisherman. He inherited his father's fishing business. He had his career. He had his ambitions. He had his desires. He had a direction that life was going. But then all of a sudden, he met a man named Jesus. And upon following Jesus and, and spending time with Jesus and coming to believe Jesus and trust Jesus, only in, in his relationship with Jesus did God finally reveal to Simon the fisherman that he wasn't Simon, nor was he a fisherman, but that he was Peter and that he was a preacher and that he would actually be the foundation of the entire movement of Christianity. But Simon, the fisherman, did not know that he was Peter the preacher until he knew God and he trusted God and God revealed that to him within their relationship. Saul of Tarsus, the religious zealot who persecuted Christians, who arrested Christians and hunted them down like dogs, we know for a fact that he uh, looked upon with positivity the killing of Christians there's a strong possibility that he killed Christians himself or had them ordered to be killed, though we don't know that for sure. But this Saul, this religious zealot who stood totally against Christianity, did not know that he was really Paul, the most prolific church planner in history, who evangelized, preached, and taught to all of Asia in his lifetime, who God would raise up to pen the words of the Holy Scriptures that have influenced all of history more than anyone else other than maybe Jesus Christ alone. But Saul, 
did not know that he was Paul, not until he knew God and not until that was revealed to him within their relationship. And I did not know who I was apart from Christ. And even though I am starting to figure it out, I still don't know to what full extent God's plan is for me. And you don't know who you are apart from Christ. And even if you're starting to figure it out, you don't know the full extent of what God wants to do in your life. And we see this same thing in Genesis 32 in the life of Jacob. Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the trickster. Jacob, the supplanter. Jacob, the liar, did not know that he was Israel, the one who strives with God and men and prevails, not until God within their relationship revealed it to him. He didn't know. This is the reality for every single person born on this earth. Though you were formed by God in your mother's room and he literally wrote the code of your life and designed you with intentionality and has a plan for your life and a will for your life and a purpose for your life, you do not know what it is apart from a relationship with him and him revealing it to you over time. I'll show you this reality in Genesis, and then we're going to go to Matthew 16, where Jesus addresses this reality as clear as anything else, and he gives us one of the greatest warnings and one of the greatest promises in Scripture. Like I said, second only to the gospel, I believe what we're going to see today is the most powerful thing that a believer can latch on to, understand, believe, and chase. I want to go to Genesis 32, and I want us to, to see this. I don't have time to go all within everything. If you missed last week's message, you're not gonna really need it uh, to get today, uh, but I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna explain the whole context of Genesis 32 other than to say uh, that uh, Jacob uh, had known God for around 20 years, but he never truly came to trust God or entrust God with his life. And then all of a sudden, uh, on the, the, the eve of the potentially worst day and last day of his life, uh, in his desperation, God came to meet Jacob and started a wrestling match with him and revealed to him that it was God, in fact, that was with him. And in this moment, in his hunger for God and in his humility uh, for the first time in his life, he fully trusted God and he said, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. His, his, his heart was God, whatever it is, that you're here for, whatever it is that you showed up on this mountain for, whatever it is that you've come to do, I no longer want my will or my ambitions or my desires, whatever it is that you came to do, I want what you have, I want what, uh, whatever you came to do, I want you to do it, I want your blessing, I don't wanna seek that blessing, I don't wanna seek that purpose, I don't wanna seek my ambition, I only want you and what you want from me. And in response to that, God blessed him. But what I want you to see this morning is the way at which God blessed him because it will open up our heart and our mind to the reality of what God wants to do, not just in Abram's life, not just in David's life, not just in Ezekiel's life or Simon's life or Saul's life or in Jacob's life, but what he wants to do in every single person's life whom he created. And so I want us to look at Genesis 32 really fast. Start with verse 22. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. This is verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then in verse 27, uh, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob then asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so the heart of this is that for the first time since Jacob knew God, he had became desperate. He had become hungry for God and for whatever God had for him. He kind of came to the end of himself. 
After so many years of living his life according to his own ambitions, according to his own desires, even doing some of God's things his own way, after he got to this age of, he's, he's in his 70s at this point, he has known God for 20 years at this point, and he is finally at a place of desperation and hunger and humility that he holds on to God and he says, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. So Jacob was open-ended. He didn't put a specific on it. He, he, he didn't say, save me from my brother Esau. He didn't say, bless me with wealth. He didn't say, uh, give me the strength to fight. He didn't say, give me victory. He didn't say any of that. He said, God, I'm done chasing what I want. I want whatever you want for me, so I'm gonna hold on to you until your will is done in my life. You bless me whatever way that you wanna bless me. All right, there's a power in that. There's a power in that. God's response then was to radically transform Jacob into a totally different human being. It wasn't just a name change. It wasn't just Jacob to Israel, Bob to Kevin. It wasn't just a name change, all right? Sorry, Bob or Kevins. It was a, it was a personality, a character, a soul, an identity change. It shifted. He was never the same person ever again after this moment. So this is the thing that I really want you to see. When God gets involved in your life, he is looking to transform you into someone else. The thing that we have to recognize, and we'll see this in just a minute in Matthew 16, the thing that we have to truly recognize is that we were born into sin. Sin has had its way with us. Sin has its mark on us. Sin has formed and shaped our thought processes, our mindsets, our philosophies. Sin has wounded us in our hearts and in our souls. Sin has had its way with us. The Bible also says that we are deeply influenced by the culture or the age at whatever generation we showed up in history, that we are deeply influenced by the culture and the age whom the Bible says very clearly, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that Satan fully controls. Jesus even called him the prince of the power of the air. Paul called him that in Ephesians, and Jesus said he's the prince and the ruler of the world. He said that in John 15. So I, I need you to understand that though your parents were amazing, or maybe they weren't so amazing, uh, that, that the two greatest influences in your life are the sin that you are born into, the sin that you've committed, the sin that's been committed against you, the sin that's corrupted your mindsets, and Satan, who controls the culture and the age, also has deeply influenced you. So prior to you knowing Christ, prior to you ever coming to any kind of understanding or realization or revelation of God's word, you were first taught about life by sin and Satan. That's tough. That's tough. So what that means is, is that all of your ambition, all of your struggles, all of your desires, all of the things that, that you uh, wanted to live and wanted to do, all the things that you thought life was about came to you and was influenced by what? Sin and Satan. And we don't know who we truly are in Christ. Even in the New Testament, it says that our life is hidden in Christ. It's revealed to us over time. And so I, what I wanna look at, and I wanna be really clear here because I'm a, I'm, this scripture that we're about to get into in Matthew 16, if you have your Bibles, you can already flip there. I struggle to say the thing that I'm about to say because sometimes people send me emails and they say that I'm arrogant and sometimes they say, I, don't, I wish you wouldn't badmouth the preacher that I grew up with and I'm not badmouthing uh, Pastor Bob or whatever his name was, uh, but I am saying that he's wrong and that's okay, I can say that. It's, it's good, every, every, no, I've been wrong before and if I'm wrong and you tell me I'm wrong, I'm good with it. So don't defend Bob, okay, Bob's fine. Jesus has got Bob covered, all right? So I, I need you to hear me. What we're about to get into is one of the most mistaught scriptures in all of the New Testament, in Matthew 16. I wanna tell you before we go ahead and get into it, that we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about salvation. And I'm gonna show that to you as clear as day here in just a minute. But just to make sure we're all on the same page and that we're awake, I'm gonna count to three, and then all of us are gonna say, it's not about salvation. Are you guys ready? Do you need to practice? You guys ready on this side? 
All right, one, two, three, then I'm gonna say it's not about salvation. One, two, three, it's not about salvation. All right, good. Now let's go to, let's go to Matthew 16. I wanna show you this, because Jesus teaches us this very, 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 very clear. Now, the main scripture is gonna be Matthew 16, 24, but I wanna address the things that are coming, that's preceding this verse so that you can fully understand the context and you can get the powerful warning and promise that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16. The first thing you gotta know in the middle of Matthew 16, if you go through and you read it, Jesus randomly one day, now they have been with, the disciples have been with Jesus for years at this point. This is just, we're getting really close to the last uh, few days and weeks of Jesus' life before he's arrested in the garden and, and dies for our sins. Uh, but Jesus turns around randomly and he says, hey, who does everybody say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah and some say you're some other prophet that's kind of come back. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Simon, the fisherman, was the first person to speak up, as he usually was. But this time, unlike most of the time, he was right. He declares, he's the first human being to declare in faith exactly who Jesus was. And he says, you are the son of the living God. You are the savior, you are the Messiah. And Jesus affirms this. And he says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So this is the first declaration of faith about Jesus. Simon was the first person to put his true faith in Christ as Lord, as the Son of God, and as the Messiah. This was such a powerful moment in history that this is the first time that Jesus then confirmed without doubt, with extreme clarity, that he fully and truly was the son of the living God and that he was the promised savior, that he was the promised Messiah. And he goes on top of that and he says that this declaration that you just made, this act of faith that you just said, you declaring me the son of God, this is the declaration and this is the foundation that I will build my entire movement on. He says, this is what I'll build my ecclesia, my church on. This is what I'll build my movement, my revolution on. And he said, and when I build the ecclesia, the assembly, the gathering, the church of Jesus Christ, when I build this on this foundation, on this rock, on this declaration that I am the son of God, it will be so strong and it will be so powerful that not even the gates of hell or death itself will prevail against it. Amen. That's powerful. That's good. You miss a great opportunity to get excited about life right there. You're on the right team is what I'm trying to tell you. We can't be stopped. They've tried to stop us for 2,000 years and we're still here, amen? All right, you being in the seats right now is evidence that Jesus Christ was right. Do you know how many crazy religions there are out there? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, but they all get snuffed out. Ours is what it is because our Savior is not in the ground buried somewhere. Our Savior is a living, resurrected King. Hallelujah and amen. Get excited about Jesus this morning. That was good. Y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. That was exciting, wasn't it? That's kind of how I, how I would feel if I was Peter. I was like, I nailed it. Peter was probably doing what I was just doing. He, but he was looking around trying to go, you guys need to clap to that. Did you guys hear that? I know I've been wrong every other time I've opened my mouth since I met Jesus, but I got that one right. John, I don't hear you clapping, bud. He was all proud of himself. Then 911 seconds later, Peter said the worst thing he ever said in the history of the world. Jesus told him, he said, Simon, you're no longer Simon, but you're Peter. This signifies that new life in Christ when we put our faith in Jesus. And he told him, he said, I'm gonna use you to do great and mighty things. Because they have this revelation now and they were confirmed that this was Jesus the Christ, Jesus began to reveal to them the true plan of God, that he wasn't gonna set up an earthly kingdom, that he wasn't gonna overthrow Rome and that they weren't gonna have some great positions of power, but that he came to actually die for the sins of the world, that he came for a, not a temporary short-term thing, but he came for an eternal powerful thing. And he said that I'm gonna be handed over uh, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, 
I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And, Jesus, uh, and Peter couldn't take this. I, I want to read this. This is important to understand the context. It says that Peter took him aside. Now, Peter just said he was the son of the living God. And he just said that he was the Messiah. And he just said he was the Savior. And then Jesus began to explain this stuff to him, that he was going to be arrested. Then in verse 22, it says, Peter, this is Matthew 16, verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, he just said he was the son of God. What a moron. Just my opinion. I'm like, if I just declared and believed that you're the son of God, the last thing I'm going to do is whisper in your ear that you're wrong. That's just... I don't think that's the natural flow of events, but it is for Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So I wanna make sure that we really understand the weight of what just happened here. So Simon is no longer Simon, but he's Peter because he's put his faith in Jesus. He was the first one to declare that he was the son of God. Peter became saved and became the foundation or the first member of the church of Jesus Christ. Then as a faithful follower of Jesus who believed and trusted him as the son of God, begin to rebuke him. What Jesus says to him needs to put a pause on our hearts. Jesus who is revealing to Peter and the rest of the disciples the true will of God, Peter is so, his desires, even as a Christian, as a believer, his desires and his ambitions are still so out of alignment with God's will for his life that when Jesus begins to reveal God's will, Peter rebukes it and rejects it then Jesus's response to him needs to tell all of us something. That Jesus said, get behind me, who? Satan. Which meant that what Peter had in his mind was not just not in line with the will of God, but was more in line with the will of Satan. What's even more telling is that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So if Jesus is telling him, calling him Satan, affirming and confirming that, that Peter's ambitions and desires are more satanic than they are in alignment with God's will, you would think that Jesus would say, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of Satan, but he doesn't. He says, you don't have in, th uh, in mind the things of God, but the things of man, which means that, and I need you to hear me, that the things of man, the ambitions of man, the desires of man apart from Christ are satanic, not godlike. Did you hear me? That's why I said a minute ago, I tried to warm you up a little bit. We are influenced by two dynamic things, the sin in our flesh also the sin in other people's flesh, and Satan whom controls the world and influences the culture and the age which raised us. We do not understand how deeply influenced we are. Peter did not, he didn't fully get this. What Jesus is telling him is he's saying, Peter, I know that you just declared that I'm the son of God and I know that you believe that and I know that you wanna follow me and I know that you wanna come after me and I know that you're legit, I know you're the real deal and I know the future, but I've gotta tell you something, you've still got some things inside your mind, some desires inside your mind, you've got some ambitions inside your mind, you've got some directions you wanna go inside your mind that are so out of alignment with God that they are literally satanic. And that they're so powerful. Now get this, this is how powerful and how out of alignment Peter's mindset was. Jesus said, what you are telling me is a stumbling block to me. That means Jesus, the perfect son of God, looked into the mindset of Peter and it was so out of alignment of God's will that it was a literal temptation for Jesus. Now that is heavy out of alignment. Now this is the setting at which Jesus then begins to teach 
The second most powerful message I believe that is in scripture apart only from the gospel. In relation to this, in connection to this, and in response to this, Jesus lays out Matthew 16, 24. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, then Jesus, because of what just happened, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Now, when I was, I warned you a few minutes ago about not defending Pastor Bob. The vast majority of the time that this scripture is taught, it is taught as if it's speaking about salvation and eternal life, and it is not. The majority of the time, people stay away from this scripture because if you think it's about salvation and eternal life, it genuinely doesn't make any sense and it's confusing. And I wanna show you, I think that it's very important that we establish that this is not about salvation so that we can see the weight of it. I, I got four big reasons. One, Simon had just declared that Jesus was the son of the living God and that he was the Messiah and Jesus just affirmed and confirmed that this was a reality revealed to him by God the Father in heaven and that he was blessed because of this. The second reason, so that means Peter saved and he confirmed to all of the disciples this. So now they're all believing, they're all trusting, they've all put their faith in Christ, not just as a great prophet, not just as a great teacher, not just as John the Baptist or Elijah, but they put their faith and trust in him as the son of God, as the Lord of their life and as the Messiah. So that's number one. Number two, this declaration was so powerful that he says this is the foundation of the entire church and the entire movement of Christianity. So we're not talking about eternal life. The third reason, and this is the most important reason, I'm gonna read this to you one more time, at verse 25 and 26. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26 is what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So you have life twice in verse 25 and soul twice in verse 26. And all four of those words are the same exact word in the Greek. The, there's three words that, that, that refer to life. Zoe, bios, and psyche. Every single time, Jesus refers to eternal life, like when he says, the bread of life, I'm the bread of life, or I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Every time that Jesus is talking about salvation or new life in Christ or, 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 or eternal life, he uses the term zoe. It's the most deeper spiritual idea of life and eternal life. Jesus uses this word very regularly. Then there's bios which is like biology, it's your physical life, it's, it's your body. Jesus uses this term on a regular basis in the gospels when he is referring to the physical, temporary, day-to-day -day life. Then the third word, psyche, Jesus doesn't use all that much. Psyche points to the idea of the soul or the mind, the will, and the emotions or the identity. It's what makes you, you. And so Jesus, right here in verse 25, if you haven't figured it out already, he's not using the word zoe, he's not using the word bios, he's not talking about eternal life, he's not talking about the physical life. He speak, this word that he uses uh, in verse 25, life twice, and in verse 26, soul twice, it's the same word and it's psyche. And again, psyche means your mind, your will, your emotions, or your identity. So we're not talking about salvation, we're talking about Identity, we're talking about your mind, your will, and emotions. We're talking about who you were before you met Jesus versus who you are after he transforms you. Does that make sense? The fourth thing that I want you to see that we're not talking about salvation is in verse 27, Jesus warns them that upon his return, he's gonna come in his father's glory with all his angels and then repay each one according to what he has done. 
So Jesus' mindset here, all right, is not eternal life. It's not salvation. It's about the transformative reality of the identity that you had prior to Christ being fully transformed into the new identity that you have in Christ. And beyond that, the actions and the deeds and the achievable things that you will do as this new person in Christ. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about you transforming your mind, your will, and emotions into this new life in Christ and then the purpose and the deeds and the actions at which God has put this new person on this earth to do. And he says, and when I return, I will repay each one according to what they've done with that new life that I'll transform them into. Does that make sense? So uh, it is very important that we understand we're not talking about salvation. So now as we go into this, as we go into this, I want the band to hang on for just a few minutes. As we go into this, uh, it, I, I want you to, I'm gonna reread this with that mindset. I want us to reread this with that mindset. In verse 24, it says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he's saying, if you really wanna come after me, if you really wanna follow me, if you really wanna go where I'm going, you really wanna do what I'm doing, and you really wanna be a part of the movement, of the ecclesia, of the church, of the kingdom of heaven, of the Father's family, if you really wanna do that, he says, then I need you to understand. I need you to understand that you're gonna have to deny who? Yourself. That word deny is, is a very nice translation. The literal word means utterly reject. There are things like Peter, this is in response to Peter. Jesus is saying, Peter, there's things in your life right now that you're gonna have to utterly reject. You're gonna have to deny. Beyond that, those things that I'm talking about that's in you, that's still there, that's still present, not only do you need to deny them and utterly reject them, but they're gonna have to die. They cannot come with you where you're going because that's not who you were created to be. That's who sin shaped you into. Now, I'm gonna take care of sin, and then I'm gonna transform you into somebody else. And that somebody else is who you were created to truly be. So then he goes on in verse 25, and I want us to see this. It says, for whoever wants to save his life, his psyche will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus says, I'm giving you a warning, and I'm giving you a promise. The warning is this. If you want to save who you were before you found Jesus, you will never discover who you are in Jesus. Let me, let me put it in a, in a very simplistic way. Jesus came to Peter and he said, Peter, you have some ambitions and desires in your life that are connected solely to your mind, your will, your emotions, your identity, your psyche that was present before you met me. And Peter, that's the Simon in you. That's the one that was shaped by sin. That's the one that was influenced by the culture and the age that's ruled by Satan. And those desires and those ambitions and those wants and those philosophies and those views of life and those definitions of success and all of the things that you've tried to achieve and acquire and build before you knew me, before you fully trusted me, before you surrendered your life to me, all of those things, none of those things are from me. Those are all been formed and influenced by sin and by Satan. And those things you have to deny and those things are gonna have to die. And he says, if you're not willing to let those things go, more directly, he says, if you want to save that, if you wanna save that and you're not willing to let it go, you'll never discover who you truly are in Christ. You'll never experience the fullness of your new identity. Let, let, me, let me lay this out. I'm, I'm gonna read this in the literal translation. Right? I, I want us to see this directly from the Greek over to the English. 
so that you can hear the, the passion of Jesus. This is, this is literally what it says. This is Matthew 16, 25, but instead of the ESV, this is just directly from the Greek over to the English. It says, for whoever desires to save the psyche or the identity, the mind, the will, and the emotions, whoever desires to save that Simon in them, whoever desires to save that Jacob in them will lose it. But whoever, however, might lose the psyche, might lose that Simon part of us, might lose that Jacob part of us, of him on account of me will discover it. So he's saying, Simon, when you are ready to let Simon go, when you're ready to lay down the desires and the ambitions and the thought processes and the philosophies and the soul and, and, and the identity of Simon, when you're ready to lay that down and hold on to me and follow me, then you will discover the new identity that I have for you. You'll discover the Peter. You'll discover the deeds and the actions and the things that I've truly designed you to do and that I've called you to. And he said, Simon, you know, being a fisherman's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad career. It's a good job. And it's your father's business. But Simon, I didn't create you for that. I created you to be a preacher. I created you to be the foundation of the church. I created you to take the message of the gospel all over the world. And though your salvation is paid for by me and given to you as a gift, this process is in your hands. Simon, you're gonna have to come to a place where you're willing and ready to lay it all down and come after me. And in your relational connection to me, as I slowly transform you, I will begin to reveal to your heart who you truly are and what you've truly been put on this earth to do. And I'll begin to open up opportunities for you to fulfill the purpose at which I created you for. And I, I, I wanna read this just straight through. It says, for whoever desires to save the psyche of him will lose it, but whoever, however, might lose the psyche on account of me will discover it. Now, I wanna, I wanna pick this truth up and I wanna go back to Genesis 32. This is Jacob's moment. When Jacob's finally tired of Jacob, when Jacob's finally tired of his ambitions, and his desires and the direction that he's going with life. And he comes to terms with who this man is in front of him, that it's no man at all, that it's God. And he holds on to him, he clings a hold of him. And he says, whatever you want for me is what I want, bless me. And what God did was blessed him, not just with a new name, but a new identity a new self with a new purpose and with a new design. And Jacob no longer was Jacob. He was Israel from that day forward. And he no longer lived the life of a trickster and a supplanter and a deceiver, but he lived the life of a powerful man of God who strives with God and strives with men and prevails. And his sons, his 12 sons became Israel, became the nation that eventually brought about Jesus Christ. So the heart of what I'm saying to you this morning is that you have within you a distinct design that God formed in the womb. He wrote the code of your life. He is the only one who knows who you truly are. And there is a will and there is intentions and there are things that you've been called to do in this life, but you do not nor will you ever know them as long as you are trying to hold on to the old you. But if you get to a place in your life where you're willing and you're ready to say, Jesus, 
I want to go wherever you're going, and I want to do whatever it is that you're doing, and I'm going to hold on to you until you transform me, until you change me, until the old me is completely gone, and all that's left is the new me, and then I want to spend my life serving you in the capacity at which you actually created me to be served. The second, we can clap to that, come on. The second thing, and I want to end with this, and it's gonna seem like out of left field, but do you ever realize how unsatisfied you are in life? How much we really lack peace? How much we really lack contentment? And I know that for most of us because we just continually chase and build and acquire and achieve and just trying to go and get. And there's another scripture that I wanna end on this. It, it, it's, it's one that I've just chewed on for years. It's, it's something that Jesus says almost randomly right after the conversation in John 4 with the, with the woman at the well. They're all hungry and tired and the disciples go to get food and Jesus goes to the well and he meets the woman. They have this crazy powerful conversation and, and, and she uh, becomes saved in that moment. It reveals that he's the Messiah. He goes, she goes into the town and, and just in, and evangelizes it and the disciples come back and they see Jesus and, and they start talking about food and, and then Jesus says this one statement. I have food that you know nothing about. And he says, it's the will of God. What Jesus just gave us right there is so deeply spiritual and so much wisdom and it's more powerful than I can get into right now. But what satisfies you, like food satisfies us and it makes us feel full and it makes us feel content, it makes us feel good. When we're hungry, food satisfies us. And what Jesus said right there is that the most satisfying food on earth is to do the will of God, to live the life we were created to live in Jesus, to achieve and do the things that we were created to do. And now it doesn't affect your salvation ever. But Jesus says, he, he ends this with saying something that I think we just totally ignore as a people. He says, for the son of man will come in his father's glory with his angels and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. I know that we live in a, in a generation where everybody gets a trophy. That's not the way it is in heaven. We will be rewarded based on what we do with the blood of Jesus Christ. We will be rewarded based off our response to Christ saving us. We will be rewarded according to what we do in this life. We will all make it to heaven because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Salvation is free. What I'm trying to get you to understand this morning is that there is a whole adventure that God has for us. And that if we will hold on to him, he will reveal that to us piece by piece. And we will be satisfied in him doing his will. And then when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one whom fulfilled the Father's will in his own life by dying on the cross for all the sins of the world, he will hand out rewards according to what we do with this new life that he's given us. And I'm not gonna get it perfect, but I'm gonna die trying, amen? Come on, let's give God glory. So my heart this morning, come to terms with where you are in your life. Jesus loves you deeply. He's never gonna leave you, he's never gonna forsake you. But he has a plan for your life, he has a purpose for your life. And he wants that old you to dissipate so that you can live the adventure of a lifetime, discovering who you truly are in Christ and achieving the things that he's called you to achieve. That is a life worth living.